from Genesis 6, 5 to 7, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Welcome back to Truths from the Text. My name is Aaron Ventura. I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Hurd, as always. And this is episode six. And today we're going to talk about God's passions. Uh, In the previous episode, we talked about God's body parts. And so we're thinking about, um, you know, all of these things that the Bible says about God that are kind of uh, bodily or things that we have like eyes and hands and ears. And uh, today we're talking about what um, some people might call emotions or passions, the things we feel very deeply when we have that pit in our stomach or you fall in love and you have the fluttering of the heart or you hear a beautiful piece of music and you get goosebumps on your arm. So these are all these bodily reactions that we just feel because we're, you know, God created us with bodies and scripture speaks to us in these terms, but then it sometimes attributes these bodily states to God. And we're trying to understand um, what do we do with all those uh, bodily states that we attribute to God who doesn't have a body. So, Ryan, I'll pass it off to you. Uh, when we're talking about God's passions, where is the place for us to start? Yeah, so in the tradition, this is a super important question, especially because of just how much in Holy Scripture we find uh, God instruct us about himself by using our creaturely passions to help explain various truths. Um, I think probably uh, of all the kinds of predicates or names that are said of God in Holy Scripture, names that somehow relate to what we call passions are both most frequent in Holy Scripture and also most frankly put of God in Holy Scripture. And One of the realities that we have to wrestle with immediately by virtue of how frequently and frankly God is said to have passions in the text of Holy Scripture is the fact that this frequency and frankness can be an opportunity to misunderstand what God intends to say and advert us to by using these predicates taken up from among creatures and saying them of himself. Um, Immediately, one thing that we're really inclined to do is to consider these passions to be said of God in a way that is proper or to use quote unquote normal person talk uh, in a way that is literal or actually the case in some type of one-to-one fashion. Now, we've talked a lot about this already when we handled the comparatively easier issues of whether God has a hand, whether God has eyes, and so on. 
Um, this is more of the same. Remember, we noted immediately the fact that although God has a hand is true, nonetheless, the kind of truth that it is, is not a proper or a literal truth, as we might say colloquially, but it's a true metaphor that has been put in order to advert us to the real truth, so to speak, that God has power or strength. We're not doing anything differently here in the case of God's passions. We're just doing more of the same. For example, when God is said to be angry in Holy Scripture, this adverts us to various truths, but a very frequent one is that he is just or that he punishes. And similarly for other passions as well, the trouble or the sticking point comes in, especially for people when they look at how frequently and again, how frankly these passions are said of God in Holy Scripture, um, where we start to get a little bit nervous uh, when we have to recognize these are metaphors and explain them uh, in terms of what befits God and things of this sort. So very important questions that the tradition handles and the tradition, especially in the Latin and Greek fathers and then in the medievals handles these questions, various classic texts. But one of them is the text that we introduce this episode uh, with today, Genesis six verses six through seven. Uh, and actually also verse eight, uh, we kind of stopped on the, on the bad note. <laughs> verse eight is Noah found grace or um, God was happy or pleased with Noah, something like that. So we have both, we might say negative emotions in verses six and seven, but also positive emotions or passions set of God in Holy scripture that are very important for us to understand the scriptural text uh, in order to, in order to do so, we need to interpret them well. Um, this text particularly is a locus classicus or a classic commonplace for handling the issue of the passions of God, Genesis 6. So when when most people hear the word passion, uh, almost everyone is going to have some connotation, positive or negative. Uh, often we think of passions as something that is not ruled by the reason and therefore it's kind of a emotional temper tantrum, and therefore we need to be, um, you know, more stoic. Or passions are bad; are inherently bad. Would be some people's idea of passions. Uh, in uh, Christianity, there's a big conference. I am told called the Passion Conference, uh, and I I know some churches who are all about the passion. Um, we speak of Christ's suffering as. Christ's passion. So uh, help us out. Are passions good? Are passions bad? What distinctions do we need to make when we're just thinking about something we're removing from God? So God doesn't have a body. We know what a body is. God doesn't have passions. But what is what is a passion? Those are all really good and essential, but also hard questions. It's also hard because we're really asking not about the definition of a word, but about the various realities that are called passions, the various creaturely things. Remember, we talked about this a little bit in an earlier episode. Um, we can get by a lot of the time 
with defining words carefully and things like this. But theology doesn't operate in terms of definitions uh, so much as it operates in terms of real creaturely things. Whence we take up our names or predicates and we either affirm or negate them of God. Um, So that's part of the issue. Another part of the issue is that the various slices, if you like, of creaturely reality that philosophically we use the word passion of, well, those realities are multifold and various. And in the philosophical and theological tradition, a passion, and I mean the reality, a creaturely passion, uh, is set in many modes. Sometimes passions are, as you say, um, disordered, disordered feelings, so to speak. So they are inherently sinful. We might say they are states of affairs that afflict creaturely persons that are um, needing to be put off. We see Paul in Holy Scripture speak of the passions of the flesh and things like this. Okay, this is one very important item in the creaturely order um, that we do sometimes take up names of God from. Uh, In an entirely different, well, not entirely different, but in a somewhat different, albeit related sense, Passion can just mean some affection or some emotion, roughly speaking. This is a place where you kind of have to put on your philosopher hat or your metaphysician hat and do quite a lot of work in Aristotle in in order to make a lot of progress, uh, get all the wrinkles ironed out. For our purposes here, Passion in this sense is roughly what we would call an emotion or even uh, what people would call today a hormone, (laughs) strange as it is to say. From the perspective of the fathers, when they talk about passions, they mean, roughly speaking, what we mean by hormones or chemicals that produce emotional states or feelings, Uh, uh, you know. Uh, the, you mentioned a number of examples that it's always useful to, to advert people's attention to. Um, when you see somebody in a movie uh, get, a, get smacked down or something and you really feel that in your gut, um, that's the passion that we would call mercy, um, which has a lot of theological overtones. But in the strict creaturely sense of what is mercy or Aristotle's Elios, uh, it's simply the resonance in oneself, uh, particularly in one's affective or volitional side of of the person, it's the resonance of evil or something bad that's happened to another. Their feeling of sadness or hurt uh, resonates with you and you feel that very bodily. Um, So we look out into the world, we see various uh, creatures have lots of the passion mercy, Some people have less a passion mercy. Um, Aristotle will even say uh, that women, in contrast to men, have more mercy than men because their bodies are so structured. Here's where we really get into the hormone talk. Philosophically, their bodies are so structured to be in tune with the material order that they're very sensitive. That's how we would often put it today. In, In the good sense, 
Of course, it can be a bad sense. Any passion can become disordered for anybody. But women's bodies are supremely sensitive, whereas men's bodies are typically harder, stronger, less feeling, um, and have different sets of passions as well. All these things uh, need to be very carefully determined as to what they are before and behind we turn, we, before we turn to issues of theology where we take up these creaturely items and we put them of God. From the perspective of the theological tradition, it's assumed that we've already done that such that when we say God doesn't have passions, we immediately understand this is little more than saying God doesn't have unhinged emotions or God doesn't have hormonal states or something of that sort, rather than what people might hear, a very different sense of the word passion or even a different creaturely reality. They might hear God is heartless or God is uh, not considerate or something like that, which is, of course, not what is meant in theology, but uh, people could be inclined to if they don't from the get-go understand what we're talking about with us and among creatures and therefore what we're going to need to say of God who lacks a body but has spiritual or purely volitional uh, feelings, if we can use that word, towards us. Holy Scripture will take our creaturely passions, say them of God, in order to designate those volitional states of affairs in God, again, roughly speaking. Hmm. One of the, uh, I think in your practical spiritual life and walking with God, it's been my experience that uh, the Psalms especially do this. I think of Psalm 103, where it says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those, or uh, some translations will say, has compassion or is merciful towards those who fear him. And you can know that God loves you kind of intellectually, or you read it on the page or John three sixteen. like, okay, I know God loves me, but, uh, in your day-to-day life, um, love can actually kind of be more abstract until you can kind of clothe and enflesh it with these literally bodily passions of, I know what it is to see someone in pain and want to alleviate their pain or, Um, I know what it is to see someone crying and want to wipe away their tears. Or, and now that I'm a father, Psalm 103 just hits differently now. I can think of, I pity my child when they, you know, run smack into a wall and are, and are crying. And I feel in myself both, this kid needs to get tough. He needs fortitude. So I don't go um, maybe as immediately as I, but I'm restraining myself, even though, Mm -hmm everything is compelling me to go towards them. So I'm trying to to rule my passion of just make the pain go away um, with what I think is actually best for the kid. He learns to blow it out and, uh, you know, wipe away his own tears eventually. And this is where the, the father and the mother, right? They have different bodily emotions where uh, the mother rightly, she's carried the child in her womb for nine months. She has a a different bodily connection with the child than I do as, as a father. Um, and yet scripture makes us to say, just like I feel pity towards my child. 
so God feels towards me. And I find that to be some of the most bodily comforting truths in scripture. And now we're just asking the question, um, what grounds that metaphor? What, what really is the, um, the truth, um, in this, in this text when, uh, scripture makes us to say these passions. Yeah. Other reflections on this uh, issue. Yeah. So, you know, putting flesh on the bones is exactly right. And making sure that we really get just how true these truths are of God is really the intention, uh, almost entirely the intention or the goal behind saying these fleshly items or these fleshly experiences that resonate with us they're meaningful for us saying these things of god um interestingly you even mentioned the differences between men and women as they bear towards their children Uh, again in aristotelian terms women have more elios more mercy not theology compassion as compared to justice something like that no it's the it's the the bodily resonance or sensitivity uh, the the ease in which, or even the the powers uh, to identify with a child's suffering that are more proper to a mother than they are to a father. Holy Scripture will even advert us to this difference, and so it will not only say that God is kind of like a father who pities his children, but it even takes advantage of the more extreme version that mothers often feel. And so God will say, I am as a mother towards my children. And in fact, even more so, because it could be that a mother goes against every bodily uh, power and structure and good that she has towards her child, particularly her baby. It could be that she forgets her child. It would be very, very hard to do even bodily, uh, but it could happen. But God would never do that for us, it says in Isaiah. So it uses that comparison and contrast of different creaturely experience of passions to advert us to the depths of God's feelings towards us, mm-hmm. to really put the flesh on the bones. Yeah, and the that, key is the, go ahead, go ahead, yeah, the, go ahead. The key is twofold here, right? The key is um, don't undercut what the metaphor is being put for. When we do some technical work in theology and initially we step back and say, eh, you know, it says God has passions, but he doesn't really have passions. Don't hear that as bleeding out the truth or undercutting the truth, what that metaphor was put for. Rather, just remember, it's the recognition that it is a metaphor that's being used. And the reason why that metaphor is being used is because God has more of what we're talking about rather than less. And in order to get around just how much God feels for us in our pain, God's going to use every creaturely experience of mothers and fathers and etc. to try and get the little shards that he has all woven up into his heart um, super united, so to speak, that super dense feeling of love that God has for us. It's just the shards of passion that we experience with us and among creatures. So make sure you keep track of both those items uh, as we work through. So when it comes to things like mercy, compassion, that are kind of, as we said, putting the flesh on the bones of God's 
will will uh, him willing um, himself as the, our highest good. Uh, what do we do then with all of the things that um, are kind of negative experiences? Is probably how we would talk about them. So um, fear. Uh, I'm af- I'm afraid or um, I'm sad. Um, in what sense do we want to say? You know, does God have so much more fear? Is he? Does he have super fear? Um, where we want to say he has super love or super mercy or whatever, or or even wrath. So Scripture will speak of him, you know, burning with anger or his, you know, his nos- his nose is hot. Um, what do we? How do we weight? the different passions as we're trying to get really an accurate, as accurate as possible of a portrait of God um, that we can in this life. Yeah. So the strategy of supersizing it doesn't always work in the same way. You know, mercy is a positive emotion, a positive passion, Um, that adverts us to the fact that God infinitely tends to help us and relieve our sadnesses. So much so that he works our salvation. That's what mercy, as said of God in Holy Scripture, is especially concerned to advert us to. God really saves. And God's greatest concern is to help us. He does all that he does simply to help us, not to help himself. He doesn't need any help. We're the ones that need help. And just like a mother won't think of anything about herself, but will immediately launch out of a chair when she sees her child in danger. And she'll immediately and very quickly do whatever it takes to save the child. Likewise, God, that's how we say mercy of God. You hear kind of that supersizing, strategy of supersizing, running the background. But it's not always what we're needing to do in order to satisfy the metaphor that's said of God. You mentioned the example of God is angry. It would be wrong to think that God is angry in a supersized fashion. He's just angry and more so. Um, you think you can frown at your child. Well, let's just draw that frown. Uh, you know, more upside down, so to speak. There is just dial up the knob. No, that's not what the metaphor was put for. God only smiles to us. Yes, there is a very important truth that is being taught us when it said God is angry, but it's not that God is frustrated with us, that he needs to be won over by us, that we're somehow in some kind of dialectic of warring between God's uh, negative feeling or emotion towards us and positive feeling towards us. No, God only has positive feelings towards us. Anger of God, rather, adverts us to the super seriousness, if you like, of sin, the super reality of punishment, the super certainty, if you like, of of punishment, of course, using the, the super line here is starting to fade out. But yeah, The reality of sin, the seriousness of sin, the reality, the surety of coming punishment should we not repent and be healed in Christ. Um, And the fact that God upholds justice and he will from his justice punish, things like this. 
It doesn't mean that God is, uh, you know, in, a, an infinitely burning firebomb waiting to nuke us uh, if we don't run to Christ or something like that. Rather, it means that should we not come to Christ, the punishment from our sins that accrues to us by virtue of the evils that we inflict upon ourselves is going to go to seed and we're going to reap the consequences. That is a desperately, even deathly serious reality and truth. And God, to advert our attention to this truth, will say in Holy Scripture that he's angry with us. And it's a quote-unquote metaphor, not less real, of course, equally true, just like all other metaphors. But here it's a metaphor, especially for the fact that sin has consequences and justice will be served and these sorts of things. So yeah, the strategy of supersizing it, just maxing out God's emotional register, if you like, um, doesn't always serve what we need to do uh, as we read the text of Holy Scripture, particularly with these so-called negative emotions like God is angry, um, God repents, and others of this sort. Um, Those are going to be instances where the metaphor is put for something else than a correspondent feeling in God's will towards us. Uh, And we need to pay attention to that lest we err. Yeah. So looking at our Genesis text, let's see if we could work a little bit on this uh, first passion of uh, repenting uh, or relenting. Um, How should we think about God's repentance? Well, that's a really interesting question, and it's especially interesting to look at this question by way of Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7. As I mentioned, this is really the classic commonplace that both the Latin and the Greek theological tradition uh, take a pause on their commenting through Holy Scripture and will write a long disputation about how to say this name of God. It's very, very common in the tradition. Um, you know, Before we started writing systematics texts, you would have to open up the commentaries on Genesis 6 in order to read what the fathers have to say about the passions of God. So Augustine is a, a really important example of this. Uh, in his question 52, uh, which is uh, a question he responds to in a larger work called the 83 questions, uh, which, true to its title, is comprised of Augustine's responses to 83 different questions of theology and reading Holy Scripture and things like this. Question 52 is on the text of Scripture, I am sorry or I repent that I have made man. Augustine says, okay, we need to explain this text. And he takes the opportunity to give us programmatic, uh, uh, programmatic direction as to how to say, passions of God, and similar other uh, metaphorical things of God, like the various body parts that we looked at last time. I say it's really interesting to look at this Genesis 6, 6, and 7 text, particularly in the Latin and Greek tradition, because the Latin and Greek tradition like to focus on two different parts of this text. In the Latin tradition, They like to focus on God's quote-unquote repentance, 
Whereas in the Greek tradition, following the Septuagint and various other Greek translations, they like to focus more on verse 7, which says in Greek, um, I'm going to destroy man because I am angry. Because I am angry. It's the Greek word thumos. Uh, And so this is the classic text for the Greek tradition to focus on the wrath of God. And it's also the classic text in verse six for the Latin tradition to focus on the repentance of God. Very, very fascinating. And they're both doing different things. Lots to see here. One very important note, though, as we look at more of the Latin tradition and also what Augustine is going to do on the issue of the repentance of God is to flag the fact that repentance or penitence here is being considered as a passion. Not how most of us today would consider repentance. So we hear sermons all the time. What does repentance mean? Well, repentance means roughly to change your mind, to have a changed will or something of that sort. That's true. That's good. Uh, And sometimes Holy Scripture uses repentance like this. But repentance as a passion is not an action or decision or a choice to turn around or something like that. That's repentance as an activity. Repentance considered as a passion, how Augustine, the Latin tradition, the early one, considers it, is the same as feeling sorry feeling sorry. Um, So repentance as an action is what you do rightly after you feel sorry or because you feel bad, if you like. Whereas the earlier Latin tradition likes to focus on that underlying feeling, which we would call a principle or a source of activity, a principle of operation in the technical terms. So when Augustine talks about repentance here, Um, It might be better to use a different word so we don't confuse. We could speak of penitence. Uh, Of course, that has other overtones that we probably want to leave to the side as well. It means, how is God said to feel bad or to feel sorry? Something like that. That's what we're talking about here. And as we look at this text from Augustine, question 52, we see two basic points. One is a broader point about accommodation which is the rhyme and reason fundamentally why these passions are said of God. And then the second part of the text talks about different possible interpretations for metaphors that we find in Holy Scripture, leading up to the point of the text, how the metaphor, I'm sorry, or I feel bad, has been said of God. So both those items are important and in view. Something that I've noticed as I've been pondering both the body parts thing and the passions, and and you see it actually here in Genesis 6-6, is that, um, I don't know if this is just a Hebrew style thing, but often it will give you the name, repent, and then it expounds it, or it's, you know, epexegetical or whatever. And it'll, it'll says in the next line, and it grieved him at his heart. So it gives you the name And then it kind of defines it. And you see this in the Psalms where it'll say, God is my rock, my refuge, my fortress. And so it's kind of just stacking. So you act, it's giving you the sense of the name, even Mm. in the text. So it's like, 
what is what is repent in this sense? Well, it's not repent like you described just, you know, the 180 away from sin and turning to righteousness. It's not that. It's it grieved him at his heart. It's this bodily state yeah. of grief. And once you start to notice that just way that the Hebrew, um, you know, this is Proverbs, this is Psalms everywhere. It's just uh, the Hebrew parallelism oft, often does this, not always, but often does this. And then it expects you to kind of know these moves later on when it will just give it to you straight up and say, yeah, yeah God relented. Obviously, you know what I'm talking about because, of course, he doesn't uh, you right. know, change his mind. Right. Right. Um, this, this is a really interesting um section of scripture that it stacks, you know, repentance, uh, the finding favor in the eye, in the eyes of the Lord. There's just, there is so much here. Um, you know, we, we keep talking about, uh, what, what else do you want to talk about on this repentance question? Or do you want to move on to, um, the, the wrath part or the, um, him destroying everything? (laughs) Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about this idea of accommodation, particularly as Augustine talks about it in this question 52. Hopefully we can get people maybe a copy. Yeah, I'll, copy I'll, uh, I'll type it out and I'll post it in the, the show notes for people yeah, to read. Great. Yeah. So this issue of, of accommodation, um, most uh, folks who have more of a reformed or Presbyterian background would uh, know this under the name God's gracious condescension. Yeah. A similar notion going on here, but a deeper aspect that Augustine and other fathers draw attention to is not just God's gracious condescension to use our creaturely words to advert us to divine truths in ways that um, bring us and usher us in to those truths, not just God's doing so, but also the fact that the, the, the authors of Holy Scripture are likewise doing so from similar motivations uh, as to God. So also from their wisdom, of course, under guidance of the Holy Spirit, and then also from their love. Um, a good example here that is, of course, going to be familiar to people is when we speak to our children as adults, a very difficult adult-like truths. As we communicate them to our children, we communicate truly, but We communicate highly metaphorically, and we do so adverting to important parts of the truth, Um, maybe not all of the truths that are involved, but some of the truths. And we do so um, with final causes or purposes in mind for our communication. Maybe we want our child to understand something in in a certain way, uh, of course, truly. Or maybe we want our children to behave in a certain way. And then when we're when they're older, we'll explain more of the truth and the rhyme and reason. We do this all the time with our children, uh, which is why Calvin appeals to God's quote unquote baby talk. He uses this as a, uh, uh, his illustration or metaphor for what God is doing. We do this with our children. God does it with us. It also happens that the super sages of history, especially the prophets and apostles like Moses, also do that with us adults. And they write Holy Scripture as the super smarts for us normal people. Not to infantilize us, something weird like that, no, but to recognize that 
we have certain limited powers of intelligence, certain limited amounts of time. Uh, we need to hear certain truths over and over and over again. Uh, we need to act in certain ways and so on and so forth. And so the authors of Holy Scripture have strategized, if you like, in a holy way, obviously, of course, in a true way, also by guidance of God and from their love, have likewise used, quote unquote, baby talk from their perspective. You know, Moses way up there on the mountain. Uh, all of us normal people here down below on the plane are all like little children to him. But they've done so. Uh, in a similar fashion to how we would speak to our children. Hmm. So uh, Augustine begins, he says in the text, just reading from the English, to raise us up from the earthly and human things to the divine and heavenly truths. The divine scriptures have themselves come down to those words, which even the most simple people, that's you and me, uh, usually use among themselves. And therefore, men through whom the Holy Spirit has spoken have not hesitated to employ these phrases in their writings as the occasion best demands. And then he goes on and he talks about specifically words relating names or predicates relating to our creaturely passion. So a combination, we're often uh, trained to think about this in terms of what God does for us. Yes, it's also what the ancient sages, namely prophets and apostles, do for us as well and are doing in Holy Scripture. So it's almost like double accommodation or wheels and within wheels, uh, mm. if you like. Yeah, this is, I have all these very fascinating conversations with my three-year-old as we're reading the Bible. Just the other, we're reading through David and uh, Jonathan and Saul ch trying to chase David and. Uh, the kinds of questions that he asks are like, you know, when David took the spear and the water bottle from Saul when he was sleeping, you know, what color was the water bottle? What color was the sword? Um, he he's he's asking questions that are so um, carnal in the in the just bodily, you know, sensible would be another way. And you know, we've taught him the Ten Commandments, but it's like trying to explain adultery. It's like, uh, how do you explain this? Well, it's like when someone just goes to sleep with someone else's mommy and daddy, or <laughs> like you have to explain or coveting. Um, this is one that is like when you want that toy that your brother has and want to mm. take it, that's coveting. And so I, I find myself all day long trying to accommodate. Uh, and you, you realize it's actually really hard. It is a special skill to be able to translate, um, mm. Uh, abstract intellectual immaterial concepts into a more sensible reality mm -hmm. and um, now having children and, and trying to teach them the faith and thinking about what you just mentioned about the prophets and the apostles or a Paul who's caught up into heaven and he sees things that are unlawful to even speak mm -hmm. um, he has some great revelation he's doesn't know whether he's in the body or outside of the body. And uh, these prophets who have these visions and they're like, uh, they're Daniel. I don't even know what the, <laughs> the vision killed me. Uh, I need the angel to come and explain it. And then we read the explanation and we're still like, not sure what, not sure what that is all about. 
that has really helped me uh, get my mind around just how God, the the multiple levels uh, in which God has to accommodate down to us, and that whatever it is that we're saying of him, it is true what Aquinas says, that it can only be by analogy. There is no univocal predication when it comes to God. And uh, raising children really drives home that that principle or, you know, try to explain to an ant uh, what goodness is or something like that. Um, uh, other thoughts as we try to bring this this first episode to a close, uh, we are going to do at least multiple more, uh, at least one more, but probably multiple more episodes on the this question of the passions. Uh, do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, repentance or accommodation or anything else in this Genesis 6 text? I think it's just honestly more of the same and, and learning how to habituate your mind to do these kinds of moves. Once again, it can be really scary initially when you start to press the metaphor line. People feel like you're undercutting Holy Scripture, you're diminishing the truths it conveys, things of this sort. Um, it doesn't amount to that in the end. It might feel like that in the beginning, but as you work with these ideas more and more, you start to train yourself, you start to become more comfortable with um, doing these kinds of moves, having these kinds of thought processes. And also, you start to see just how much of the text of Holy Scripture uh, expects that you're doing these kinds of moves, even natively. Everybody who reads Holy Scripture is doing them to some degree. Our goal is, as we develop our skills of reading Holy Scripture, is to increase the way we do those things. And to do them methodically, programmatically, of course, obviously, truly, and in a way that does full justice to the various letters of Holy Scripture as they've been given down by God. There's a lot of things that are going to have to be said, but one by one, we can more adequately come to grips with the depths of these truths and to do so in a way that's powerful and meaningful and has traction with us. Because again, that's really the point here. Truth with flesh on the bones. God presented in such a way that has traction, not for angels, but for you and me, normal people. God, again, in his gracious condescension or kind love has brought himself down to us to bring us up to him. Hmm. We said this last time about how the incarnation and the gospels help you kind of check your work and you can read through the gospels with this eye to just identifying where is Jesus um, said or experiencing some kind of passion because here is God with a body with Hmm. physical states um, shedding tears, uh, being angry. um, And you start to get, a better sense and really a more accurate portrait of the divine nature of, uh, of, of the divine essence when you look at Christ. And that is the greatest, of course, accommodation there is, is huh. he came in the flesh Four different gospels about, you know, 
his life. And so uh, a lot of this is really basic Christianity. So you read Genesis six, you're thinking about what does it mean for someone to repent or to um, uh, uh, find favor in God's eyes or whatever it is. The gospels are just going to give you so many more examples um, of that. Any final reflections on how Christ um, helps us on this issue? No, I think, um, you know, the passions of Christ, which are not just metaphors when it comes to Christ, of course, they're proper. He really has these emotions or um, dare we say even hormones. Yes. Um, It helps advert us to the complexity of human emotions as they rightly respond to reality outside of us. It's right, as I think we mentioned last time, to cry at others' pain. We can go overboard with that, but if you don't have some correspondence, some resonance in yourself as you uh, conceive people's suffering around you, well, you're not being fully human. God, likewise, in a certain mode, uh, has something correspondent to that. We see also the anger of Christ, um, the fact that it's right to be uh, have those feelings about sin, about abuse, these various Uh, dynamics of creaturely life that we see in the world. And we can therefore learn more about right emotionality, moral emotionality as well, and then have therein pictures of the heart of God. Hmm. That's good. Well, I'm going to close with a quote from uh, St. Thomas. So this is Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, C91. And we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in the next episode. But as you're thinking uh, about emotions or what passions are, uh, consider this quotation. Aquinas says, love is the source of all the emotions, or I believe it might be passions in, in the Latin there. Love is the source of all the passions for joy and desire are only of a good that is loved. Fear and sorrow are only of evil that is contrary to the beloved good. And from these, all the other emotions arise. We'll talk more about that next week. Until next time, keep on reading.